Just as much as banking is about cash and customer experience, it's also about culture and conduct. But measuring these essentials poses a major challenge, and the actionable insights don't quite fit on a financial spreadsheet. Enter the latest BAI Banking Outlook survey, and here to share the highlights, we have BAI's own Byron Marshall and Jason Mencius. Welcome to BAI Banking Strategies, where each week we'll focus on the key issues facing financial services leaders. We'll bring you objective opinions and actionable insights that will help you power smart decisions. I'm your host, Lou Carloso, the managing editor of BAI. Come on in. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Fantastic to have you here with us. And live from our studios in Chicago, we have two of BAI's finest, Byron Marshall, the Director of Research, and Jason Mencius, Manager Research. Byron and Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, Lou. You recently completed the latest BAI Banking Outlook survey on the state of culture and conduct in financial services. Share a little bit with us about why you chose this as the survey topic and who the respondents were. Absolutely. The goal of the survey was actually really to get a gauge on how the industry is addressing some of the culture and conduct issues that are emerging in the industry within their organizations, as well as gauge general sentiment around the actions that are being taken for effectiveness. The nexus of how it came about really grew out of a couple of the groups within the banking industry that we work with, our CHRO roundtable and our HR risk roundtable. The area really started to bubble up as a result of a lot of things that we've seen go on in the industry over the past couple of years. But they were really looking for outside perspective on what's going on in the industry, how each of them may be handling some of these issues or addressing these issues individually, and build some guideposts around what the best things were to do. So we received about 500 responses from two separate groups. So the first group was revolving around people within functional areas at banks, within human resources, HR risk, learning and development, training and compliance. And then we also got the other end of the spectrum where we just wanted to see what the general employee base had to say. So it was a general banker survey, if you will, across functional areas. And we saw a pretty big disconnect in a lot of those groups. So it looks like overall banks are trying or financial services organizations are trying to address these issues and are taking the right steps when it comes to culture and conduct within the organizations. But like I said, there is a pretty big disconnect between those two groups. So there's definitely a communication gap, if you will, from those two different groups, the HR group and kind of what the general employee base is seeing the organization do. Can you tell us more about this disconnect? What were some of the key findings? Not exactly sure what's driving the disconnect, but the HR group, the people that are in HR risk compliance, I don't know if it's that they are necessarily drinking the company Kool-Aid, if you will, or they're just closer to what's going on within the culture and conduct in the organizations, because they all answered much more favorably across the board. So if just asking the simple question, does your organization have a conduct or an ethics officer, they said pretty much across the board, almost 100%, 90% said, yes, we do. But when you look at the general employee base, that general banker group that we surveyed, it's only about half said they had that. So not sure what's driving that disconnect. It could be just a communication gap. It could be that HR is thinking they're doing more than they actually are or hoping that they're doing more than they actually are than what the general employee base is thinking. 
Okay, so the bottom line, does having an ethics officer make a difference? And if so, how? I think generally what we found is that it does make a difference if in no other way than from the standpoint of it appears to create some stronger guardrails for the financial services institution around some of the other things that happen related to culture and conduct and ethics. So one of the things we found is if they said that their organization had a conduct or an ethics officer, they tended to be more likely to have a written ethics policy. So something in writing that sort of lays out the ethics goals of the organization and what the ethics policies are, they tended to be more likely to require their employees to sign off on a code of conduct statement. So again, creating level expectations, as Jason mentioned, within the organization. And they also tended to be more likely to be monitoring culture through things like feedback and engagement surveys. And I also think We can't underestimate the value of having one person responsible for looking after these issues versus it being the responsibility of many. It's sort of like the old football saying, if you've got more than one quarterback, you've really got no quarterback. You can probably say the same thing about having an ethics or a conduct officer versus leaving that to the devices of functional leaders or business heads. So to add on to that, Byron, you mentioned the engagement. So if they have a culture or ethics officer, they're more likely to monitor engagement within their organizations. Right. So if you look at the organizations that do measure engagement, which most of them obviously have a conduct or ethics officer, there's even more guardrails around it. There's even more of an ethical backbone, more of that group overall, percentage-wise, have that ethics officer in place, have somebody overseeing conduct. The employees across the board feel more comfortable raising concerns within their organization. They feel like just overall, at the point in time we surveyed, their their organization's doing enough to prevent the unethical behavior. And more of them, just like you mentioned, have the code of conduct and ethics policy. That's a physical policy that needs to be signed at some point during employment. Right. And I think that's a great point because I think when we think about engagement, a lot of times we think about it just in terms of our employees, how engagement affects things like employee work performance and how they relate to consumers. But I think what this shows is there's a risk element to it as well, because as you alluded to, employees that are less engaged are also, based on our research, less likely to report bad conduct or to feel comfortable reporting bad conduct. So I think there's a risk implication to having employees that are not engaged along with some of the other things we more traditionally think about in terms of engagement. Right. It also might not be that they're necessarily uncomfortable raising concerns, but disengaged employee base, they may just have a blind spot. They may not be as care as much overall to even bring up a point of unethical behavior if they see it. It may not even cross their radar. Now, offline, you shared some insights from a recent roundtable you participated in about reporting that's required for ethics officers and conduct officers. Can you share those? Particularly for the organizations that have a conduct or an ethics officer, a lot of them are struggling with, is there a need to have both? Particularly when it comes to the reporting burden and duplication of work and reporting that comes with having both of them, because in a lot of cases, the roles overlap. So I think one of the things that we're hearing from the financial services organizations that we work with in our roundtables, particularly HR Risk, is really starting to look at, do we need both? What's the overlap between them? And do we really just need one? Based on some of the responses we got from the survey, we assumed many banks had both. 
But based on the participants in the webinar on that polling question, a very small percentage said they had both. I think it was right around 10%. It's interesting that conversation has come up. Do they need both? And if they do, is the reporting structure the same? Are they doing basically double work? So does bank size make a difference where culture and conduct are concerned? It does. There wasn't a huge gap between banks of the various sizes, but it was uh, pretty obvious the large banks are doing more. The responses for those working at large banks tended to be maybe not significantly higher, but they were definitely higher with super regional and regional banks coming in behind that. The biggest gap was between those banks and community banks. Community banks tended to rank the lowest across the board. I would agree with that. And I think one of the places that that really stood out for me was we asked the respondents to rate their bank in terms of whether they thought how ethical they thought the bank was. So whether they thought they were highly sort of moderately or on the low end of the spectrum in terms of ethics. And for the most part, large banks, super regional banks did really well. Surprisingly, regional banks scored pretty poorly. Less than half of the respondents from regional banks said that they would rate their institution as highly ethical. And then community banks in this case did better in terms of overall ranking them highly ethical. So I think in one instance that this is a case where community banks did a little bit better. But I also wonder, in addition to that, if this is one of those examples of what gets watched improves, because a lot of the focus around ethics and conduct in the last year or two or more has been mostly focused on large banks and the super regional banks, less so on the regionals, if that has played a part in that as well. One of the greatest areas of disconnect came up in a question surrounding incentive pay and holdbacks. Can you share a little bit about this and why do you think this popped up as an issue? Yeah, there definitely is a disconnect. Also, kind of surprising that only about half of the organizations overall said that they don't even have a practice in place to be able to hold back or claw back incentives that are paid if unethical behavior is detected. So for the most part, there's not a lot in place there. Not only that, the general employee base, the employees that are actually getting paid the incentives don't even know these exist because only about a quarter of those folks said that they have practices in place to even do that. But for the most part, when you're talking about holdback or clawback programs, what that is is it's trying to have a practice in place to be able to take back any incentives that were paid on fraudulent or unethical behavior in terms of account openings or incentives. It was of particular importance as we thought about this, given that sales practices is one of the areas that's gotten a lot of focus based on some of the things that are going on in the industry. And from a regulatory perspective, seems to be where a lot of the focus is as well. But I think it's also important for organizations in terms of both performance management program and figuring out, are we really paying for real growth? Are the incentives aligned with the long-term interests of the bank and of the customer, which is where I think we've gotten in trouble of late. Kind of just touch back to one of the questions Lou asked earlier in terms of does having an ethics or conduct officer really make a difference? This is an area where we do see a significant difference. If the organization does not have one of those roles in place, kind of overseeing the conduct of the organization, 
much fewer of those organizations have a policy in place to be able to hold back or claw back incentives to make sure that everything is copacetic in terms of the account that was open, the account that was sold, and the incentives that were paid. We also saw some disconnects surrounding customer disclosures. That is, do you disclose to your customers that products and or services are included in variable pay programs? Why do you think this popped up? That one, even I'll admit it, confounded us a bit. And that was another area, to Jason's point, where there was an extreme disconnect between the responses we got from HR risk compliance people and the responses we got from bankers overall. By and large, the HR risk compliance people said that this was taking place, and bankers by and large said they didn't. I tend to believe the bankers at large, just based on anecdotally what we see in the industry around disclosures, particularly when you ask the question around where the disclosures were happening. I think it's more likely that there are disclosures in written materials, whether it's account opening forms or on the website, et cetera, versus doing it in some kind of verbal way with customers at the account opening process. Again, this was an area where there was sort of a huge disconnect yeah. between bankers and the HR risk compliance folks. I think it was somewhat wishful thinking, at least on the HR side, where they're saying that, oh, of course we disclose. We have to disclose this, right? right. But again, the general employee base, only about 10% said that they did. And this was another area where we asked a polling question on the webinar. And an overwhelming majority said just flat out, they do not disclose this anywhere. So Again, a big disconnect, not sure what's driving it. Again, it's more wishful thinking for the part of HR compliance and risk, especially when you talk about compliance. That is a part that they are hoping that they're doing. And to Byron's point, if they are doing it, it's more than likely in a written disclosure on the website or during account opening. Well, speaking of doing it, you guys definitely did it. Some fantastic insights here. Kudos for all the hard work on the research. Byron and Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us, Lou. Thanks for having us, Lou. It was great. Byron Marshall is Director of Research for BAI, and Jason Mencius is Manager of Research for BAI. You can look for them on LinkedIn. And here are three key takeaways from today's podcast. Number one, with culture and conduct, there is a clear disconnect between HR, risk and compliance, and employees. Simply put, the general employee base in particular doesn't see the same rosy picture as those other constituencies. Employees may also feel disengaged with these issues, especially when their feedback isn't part of the larger culture and conduct picture. Number two, in financial services organizations, the ethics officer forms an essential guardrail. They're responsible for written ethics goals, policies, and codes of conduct that set banks on the right path. The ethics officer also promotes continuous engagement through employee feedback. A single officer can be thought of as a quarterback, a team leader who focuses on ethics full-time. And number three, the overarching category of incentive pay and holdbacks make for one of the greatest disconnects in terms of conduct and ethics. BAI Banking Outlook findings show that half of organizations overall say they don't have a procedure to hold back or claw back incentives in the event of unethical behavior. This condition can significantly improve, though, if an ethics officer and policies are put in place. Compliance can be expensive, but the cost of non-compliance is much steeper. 
BAI offers comprehensive compliance training and professional development education to more than 1,800 financial services organizations. BAI's team of compliance experts provide comprehensive and up-to-date information while actively monitoring regulatory changes and updating content so that you can trust BAI's relevant, timely information. Learn more at BAI.org training. And now BAI Banking Strategies presents My 21-Year-Old Self, where our podcast guest talks about what they were like at 21, life as an emerging leader, and the advice they give themselves today. Leadership. The passion Byron Marshall keeps alive today harkens back to a 21-year-old who considered activism, politics, and finding a place where he could make a difference. Here's how he describes the vital connection that turned idealism into an ideal career of substance. Listen. If I think back to myself at 21, it was a very much more idealistic version of me that had very big dreams about how it was going to sort of change the world. There was a point at which I thought really long and hard about, you know, getting into government and politics and trying to change things that way or activism and sort of working for nonprofits. And looking back on that, if I could give my 21-year-old self some advice, it would be to not lose sight of that. I think a lot of times as you get older, you get distracted with day-to-day life and you potentially lose focus of some of those dreams you had. And I think now more than any time, we need people who are thinking big and thinking about changing the world. And so I'd say to my younger self, stay focused on those big dreams and don't get distracted by the day-to-day stuff. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast. We hope to have you back with us very soon. Be sure to check out our ever-growing archive of podcasts at BAI.org. Our producer, as always, is James Grady. Be sure to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Lou Carloso, the managing editor of BAI. We'll see you soon. So long.